Welcome again to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Each program, we look at a book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author about that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Parna Sangupta, Associate Director of Stanford's Introductory Studies program. In her new book, Pedagogy for Religion, Missionary Education and the Fashioning of Hindus and Muslims in Bengal, she challenges the myth that Western rules secularized non-Western societies. Pedagogy for Religion focuses on missionary schools and their influence in Bengal from roughly 1850 to the 1930s. San conclusions are drawn from reading what she calls the mundane aspects of schooling, rather than focusing on high religious discourse of uh, religious leaders. The replications of religious, gender, and social identities as they were established through textbooks, objects, language, and teachers redefine modern definitions of Hindus, Muslims, and Christians. Altogether, Sengupta demonstrates that modern education effectively deepened the place of religion in colonial South Asia. However, this contemporary return to religion was not a backward or irrational resurgence of religious beliefs and practices. Religion was transformed into the carrier of modernity, and education became the means for recreating religious identity. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Um, Today we're talking with uh, Parna Sengupta um, about her new book, Pedagogy for Religion, Missionary Education, and the Fashioning of Hindus and Muslims in Bengal. Um, Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I think uh, as a trained historian, you're bringing a lot to the conversation methodologically um, for the field of religious studies. So um, I'm looking forward to your input on that. And um, I think anyone interested in uh, a wide variety of topics will be interested in this book. Uh, South Asia, Hindu societies, Muslim societies, religion, missionary activity – uh, I mean, you really you, you accomplish a lot in your book. So thank you for the contribution. Thank you very much. Um, before we get into the book itself, maybe you could just t- tell us a bit about yourself, uh, you know, how you got interested in missionaries, in Hindus and Muslims, in South Asia, in history and religion. Certainly. Um, I think that, you know, there's sort of multiple ways that I came to the subject and I became interested. Um, One is actually where I grew up. I grew up in Hawaii and Hawaii is um, a place where the question of missionaries and particularly missionary education is actually um, important, quite relevant. And I myself attended a, a what had been a missionary school, and um, and I think that's in some ways where my interest first began. And then, as an undergraduate, I had done um, a history honors thesis on a fairly important Scottish Presbyterian in India named Alexander Duff, and it was really through this initial reading of Duff that I started to get interested in missions more generally. Um, and particularly in Duff, the question of, for him, uh, the importance of English education. And so that's where I think the two issues of education, of religion, really, um, for me, began to come together. And I continued to do 
work on missionaries when um, when I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan. And at that time, I also had the opportunity to visit some very interesting mission archives in the United States itself, including the Mennonite archive in Goshen. And it's in actually doing some of the archival work that I saw how rich the sources were um, and how quite varied they were in terms of um, very detailed reports, but also a whole set of letters, diaries, etc. And I think um, as a historian, it was that richness of sources that also really interested me in terms of working with mission archives, in terms of working on, on missionaries themselves. And then what drew you to this uh, specific topic? Um, now, the, the book is uh, roughly... Uh, derived from your dissertation, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what brought brought you to this this specific topic? So, the the specific topic when I started doing. Um, so, some people, I think begin their research already having an answer. And so then they go and they try to find evidence for whatever it is that they want to demonstrate or prove. I think my approach was far more open-ended. So I went to the archives with some sense of the area I wanted to work on, but I really wanted to see where the sources led me. And it was in that process, in some ways, of actually looking at archival sources, of talking to also of talking to people at the archives, that is other people working on missionaries, other people working on Bengal itself, that the project began to, to crystallize for me. Um, in, the, um, in the archives, what I found and what really interested me was um, what I thought was a fairly under-examined, um, under-examined uh, aspect of of missionary work, which was really the ways that their work intersected with other kinds of educators. So um, missionary education, not just in India, but I would say all over the world, is one of the things that that missions are most known for, that evangelicals are most known for, both Catholics and Protestants. And um, I think what tends to be what tends not to be looked at is how influential those kinds of models, paradigms, etc., are, not just within the movement itself, but to the development of modern education and to the ideas, to the books, to the institutions developed by other educators, not just missionaries, but in for example, in the case of Bengal, also um, upper caste Hindu educators, Muslim educators, etc. Um, now, outside of the the wealth of sources, uh, why study Bengal? What what exactly was special about Bengal that that made you focus on that area? So uh, Bengal is a very you know it's it's very funny. It's almost become kind of a, 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 a generally a, a, almost a joke within South Asian studies because Bengal has perhaps um, has had a lot of attention focused on it in terms of um, in terms of history. And so there tends to be, I think, among South Asian historians, this this joke about about basically the overemphasis on Bengal. But in the case of my own work, um, I think the reason that Bengal is important. It's really one of the earliest places that Protestants um, develop some of their own um, theories, ideas, etc. But also, I think the fact that in Bengal, there was such a um, plethora of private efforts and privatized efforts made it a very dynamic place to look at education, because it wasn't just missions, but the state, as well as Hindus, Muslims, etc., many different communities who actually wanted to start their own schools. So I think it was that dynamic kind of privatized, um, private 
systematized educational effort that for me made Bengal very interesting in addition to its place symbolically certainly within the I would say the kind of evangelical imagination, in part because of the important work of William Carey, who is seen as the kind of father of modern missions in India and who starts his missionary activity in Sirampur, which is a, a which was at that time a, a, a colony um, in Bengal itself. And what, why, why examine pedagogy? What is what does pedagogy reveal for us? What what makes that a unique uh, way to examine this? Um, you know, it's. Uh, it, I think there are uh, probably a number of reasons. The most obvious, probably personally, is that um, as a teacher, as a as a teacher of history, I think about teaching itself, methods, models of teaching, etc., quite a bit. But um, but in terms of its historical significance, um, it. The, the sort of front piece of my book is a page from a teacher training um, um, booklet in Bengal. And if you look at the words that appear in teacher training, I think what's very interesting is there are words that one would expect to find very narrowly connected to schooling, let's say. But then there are words that suggest the philosophical, the cultural, the other, and I would say religious kinds of aspirations that pedagogy itself had. So, for example, if you look at the at the front page, you not only have a word for pupil teacher, but you also have words such as dogmatic, self-love, reflection, um, experiment, observation, etc. And so things that really speak to much larger ideas than merely the kind of narrow ideas we usually associate with, um, with schooling. And so for me, the 19th century and the 20th century, pedagogy always had aspirations far beyond teaching people how to teach or teaching people how to, um, how to be in a classroom. It was really also about how we learn, um, how we understand the world, um, how we become certain kinds of subjects. And for me, increasingly, really how we become a kind of modern religious subject. That to me was what was especially interesting about sort of late 19th century, early 20th century pedagogy is how much there's an interest in, you know, morality generally, but I would say actually religiosity even more narrowly. So that for me is what I found when I started looking at pedagogy is that it had um, a much both wider influence um, than just schools, but also reflected larger philosophical ideas at the time, as well as spoke to the development of certain kinds of um, other ideas, philosophical, but also, as I, as I look at in my book, certain ideas about gender, certain ideas about subjectivity, um, and certainly, of course, certain ideas about what it means to be religious or what, what, what that would entail, um, often articulated through pedagogy, but really speaking to something, I would say, much broader and a conversation about something much broader than, than just schooling itself. Yeah, and you do a very good job of, of complicating a lot of these categories, so thank you. Thanks. Um, um, maybe you could briefly tell us uh, who these missionaries were. What, so what were they doing more generally in South Asia uh, mm-hmm. out, outside of just their, their uh, educational work? Certainly. So I think what's, you know, what's interesting about the 19th century for all religions, um, and certainly including Christianity, are the ways that, um, that some of the definitions of what it meant to be, in this case, for example, a good Christian, really transformed. Um, so for 19th century Protestants, 
uh, in Britain, which is which is sort of Protestant evangelicals are the group that I look at most closely. Um, what what was so important was, in fact, this idea that you suddenly had to be concerned with those who were not Christian, that part of what it meant to be a good Christian was to give money to, to support, and perhaps even to go abroad to help convert those, um, those who, were not, um, who were not yet Christian. And so part of... Um, Part of the the interest in this group and the group that I look at, Protestant Evangelicals, is a group that both has a, a lot of support back in Britain in terms of financially, but also politically um, and perhaps one could say kind of morally in terms of Britain's empire. This group goes to India many um, – you know, with very, I would say, lofty ambitions of conversion, most of which remain unmet. Um, but nonetheless, India continues to be important in terms of missionaries going abroad, in part because it is, as I was saying for Bengal, but more generally for India, symbolically so important for the British Empire. What happens to these missionaries when they get to India is they find a situation where it's actually quite difficult to um, convert. And even though they hope Hope that schools are one institutions where they will be able to do it. They they are constantly frustrated in various ways at their conversion efforts. Um, some of the other things that they do in addition to educating or, or starting schools is doing itinerant preaching, starting up various kinds of publications, um, writing dictionaries for languages that did not have dictionaries previously, doing a lot of um, the kinds of work that then becomes, or the kinds of both institutions but also publications that then also become important more generally for Indian society. And what missionaries find over the 19th century is while they at one point had, for example, dominated something like printing, that dominance really recedes and decreases um, over, over that period of time. So all of these things, itinerant preaching, writing or translation, teaching, all of these are connected. Um, one of the other reasons that I think missionaries are quite interesting in this period is that while initially it starts out with men, um, primarily men who go over, um, especially in the field of education, what you see through the 19th century, and by the time you come to the late 19th century, this is certainly the case, more and more women missionaries going um, going abroad, uh, both individuals who are married to um, to, uh, to male missionaries, but also single women who go abroad to be teachers, who go abroad and start schools, and so for me, this was also a very interesting kind of um, very interesting kind of group to look at in terms of, of the development and and change of, for instance, gender relations um, in Britain and also in India. Um, now, one one of the methods that you use uh, that I think makes your study very unique is you focus on what you call the mundane aspects of schooling. Um, so mm-hmm. what, what do you mean by this, this term exactly, and, and why do you feel like this is an effective approach? Certainly. So I think that when, um, when, we, uh, when we talk about transformations in society or changes in society at the level of ideas and of practice, when we talk of ideas, we tend to just look at the very big ideas or the kind of high theory changes that happen. Um, but part of what interests me about 
about pedagogy itself. It's this kind of um, funny mid-level theory that speaks to practice. It's its purpose, that is pedagogic theories, purpose, ideas of teacher training or how to write a language primer or how to start a school are, you know, are directly a, a kind of concerned with very practical issues. But at the level of ideas, it has very kind of large aspirations. And the reason I think these mundane aspects are important is because many of the kind of larger philosophical, religious um, changes that may or may not be happening actually get enacted through and rethought, retranslated, reconstituted at the level of things like how you should teach or how you should set up a school or how you might want to, um, how you might want to write a language primer. I think that these, um, these kinds of objects don't tend to be studied in that way. Um, instead, you have either highly kind of bureaucratic ways of understanding education, you know, X number of schools and this person was the principal or this person was the teacher, or you have a look at, um, at, you know, kind of more general statements about this is what the British Empire should be doing for its for its subjects, etc. So when we talk about the civilizing mission, um, there tends to be a look at you know kind of kind of sort of the, the broader or larger sorts of ideas, but very little looking at actually pedagogically, literally pedagogically, how something like civilization is supposed to be enacted, is supposed to be apprehended, is supposed to be understood. And so for me, those kinds of what I call mundane aspects um, become very, very rich for bringing together ideas and practice um, in terms of, of, of this historical moment. Um, another innovative step I think you take in your, your methodology is you um, you look at the dialogical relationship between the missionary educators and the local leaders. Um, so maybe maybe you could mention how how this approach complicates previous studies or adds that and, and what maybe this relationship between missionaries and locals was. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I think um, has really been sort of an an issue within uh, in the study of of missions is that it continues to be un, understood in in very binary ways, and by that I mean you know missionaries equals imperialism, and then there is this undifferentiated category which are the natives. So it's missionaries against natives or something like that. Um, this, of course, is is absolutely not the case. And there's been very important work, I think, looking at, you know, what a, a, a much earlier book had called The Tensions of Empire, the ways, for example, missionaries were at times very much in tension with and at times directly at odds with other imperial actors. But on the other side, what I was interested in is this is it's really complicating this notion of a native opinion or a native set of schools or a you know or a native way of doing things this is simply not the case and i think in um in all societies it's far more complicated by not just multiple traditions but also all kinds of forms of hierarchy within in this case indian society and indian culture and so when i looked when when i started doing my work i was very attentive to the fact that for example um some of the early translations of um, of teacher training books were not just done by Indians, but were really done by a certain group, um, largely upper caste um, 
Hindu Bengalis who worked for the Department of Public Instruction. And in that process of translation, they did not create a Indian form, let's say, of teacher training. They really created a form of teacher training that reflected their particular community set of concerns, set of um, cultural reference, etc. Um, and I think in India, this this is very clear in part because this is actually um, then later later in the 19th century um, – you know, directly criticized by lower caste groups, by non-Hindus, particularly by Muslim educators. And so you see the way that that it's absolutely untenable, this idea of missionaries and native, for example, that the native is a very... Is, is, is a highly differentiated category and that missionaries themselves, amongst themselves, but also in their relationship to other imperial bodies, um, inc- including the East India Company itself and then later the British Raj, that missionaries themselves were not always completely in alignment. And so in looking at local leaders, I really wanted to show the complexity of that, not just to show complexity, but because it actually creates this, this very dynamic situation and the situation in which um, ideas of culture or the reproduction of certain forms of either culture or religion is directly contested by other communities, by other groups um, within Indian society. Um, now, uh, kind of getting to some of the, the, uh, the meat of some of the chapters, um, you begin by kind of giving us an overview of uh, some forms of education in South mm-hmm. Asia during the 19th century. Maybe you could mm-hmm. uh, describe uh, some of these forms. So the, you have religious education, you have vernacular mm-hmm. education, you have mm-hmm. mass education. How, how, what, what do these look like? Certainly. So, um, you know, uh, there were – before sort of the development of um, what we what we consider modern schooling, there were, as you were saying, there were multiple forms of um, of various various ways of kind of formal education for uh, in India. There were village schools, which were called bachalas, and um, these schools were often supported locally by the village or by a prominent landholder who would give money to these schools in order to educate. Usually. Primarily boys, sometimes girls, and primarily from certain certain kinds of literate castes. But there were also religious schools that offered much more specialized kinds of instruction. Um, these were not mass schools in the sense that everyone was expected to go to them. But there was some idea that if you wanted to go, for example, if you wanted more specific training within um, certain kinds of Muslim subjects, you might go to a maktab, you might go to a Quran school. But they were never meant to be mass schools. Um, The closest thing to a mass school or or a kind of mass education really was this bachala. Um, uh, There were also, um, you know, much higher forms of learning as well. Um, In the 19th century, you see a transformation of all of these forms. The British Empire, unlike um, some of the other empires, and certainly very different than the United States, was not that interested in creating a a single state-run system, in part because that didn't exist in Britain either. Instead, what they hoped was to modernize these various kinds of village schools or certain kinds of religious institutions to make all of them look more like what they considered the kind of model modern school, which I argued was very much 
shaped by the mission, by the mission ideal itself. And so it was these efforts to transform these other schools that, um, that, that I look at, but also what continued into the 20th century is this a huge amount of variation in the kinds of schools available to different communities, the kinds of schools available in different areas, and um, uh, the, the, the different kind of resources available to, for example, a village school versus a school that might be set up with some government funding, which would be in more urban areas, for instance. So this, the kind of um, pre-colonial differentiation differentiation, you saw variation, you saw actually continued into the colonial period, although the schools themselves went through some dramatic transformation. But nonetheless, you had really very different kinds of educational institutions that um, that were meant to serve very different kinds of communities and needs. Um, you then move into uh, the relationship between language and religious identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering... Uh, you talk a lot about the the practice of reading and the idea of literacy. And I'm wondering if you could kind of explain the, the role of literacy. It seems that there's different different opinions on this from the perspective of, of Bengalis and the perspective of the missionaries. So what, what is the role of literacy? Certainly. So I would say, you know, the, the idea of, of reading is very central to um, not just evangelical pedagogy, but I would say evangelical Protestantism itself. Um, the idea of either silently reading the Bible or, you know, reading in a kind of Bible study study kind of environment, but the idea of having direct access to the Word of God is very central and very important. And this, this means that when missionaries and evangelicals set up schools, for them, reading becomes one of the central things that they're concerned about, literacy. And for many missionaries, they're not that concerned that the literacy be in English. They're more concerned uh, and they feel that they would be more successful if the literacy was in a native language, in this case Bengali, and that therefore students would be able to read the Bengali Bible. This is true all over the world of, 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 of missionaries more generally. Um, in terms of the place of literacy within Indian society, literacy was, you know, available just as it was for a long time um, in Europe and only beginning to change in the 19th century, was really available only to a very small group of people. And within um, what we might think of as caste Hinduism itself, there were very clear strictures about who was allowed to be literate, who wasn't. There were um, all kinds of anxieties, for example, about women's literacy and what kinds of um, sort of changes in society that might lead to. There was a uh, explicit kinds of injunctions against lower caste and untouchable groups ever having access to literacy. So literacy in, in Hindu society, just as it is in many other societies, was a way to ensure the reproduction of certain kinds of hierarchies and differences. For evangelicals, literacy is always meant to be mass. Everyone should learn to read. And in their own schools that they start in Britain, this is very much what they want to do in, in setting up schools, especially, you know, non-Anglican schools in Britain, for example. They're very much concerned to expand the group that has access to literacy precisely so people can read the Bible. Um, and it's this idea, and I would say this is really part of the kind of what I see is the, the kind of interesting and, and radical edge of evangelicalism, which is this idea of mass literacy, of mass education, of reaching everyone, and of everyone having direct access to that kind of schooling. So you don't necessarily need someone to serve as an intermediary between you and for evangelicals, the word of God, for example. 
Um, and it's this that I think really um, is very much a part of their their efforts to start schools, their efforts to translate um, books into uh, Bengali languages, to write to, into Bengali as one of the one of the languages they they translate into, as well as to to produce you know lots of cheap material written in the vernacular in Bengali itself. Um, this from, from the kind of um, I would say kind of caste Hindu side, there's a quite a bit of discomfort with that. And so part of, um, you know, within, I think, the colonial context, part of what made modern education worth having or part of what made it worth going to a school, a modern school that was partially, um, that might be missionary, that might be partially funded by the government, was precisely its exclusivity. So there was a desire to keep education as something that exclusively certain communities, certain groups had access to, um, and to, in fact, maintain that kind of hierarchy through schooling. And so the modern of modern education, I think, is both, is both something that, for, for some people, what makes it worth having is that other people can't have it. For others, the modern uh, of modern education is a possibility that everyone would have access to it. And I think that's the kind of tension you see in terms of the funding, in terms of, um, in terms of the ideas of the kinds of books that should be, um, that should be available, the kinds of schools, where those schools should be located, etc. And so I think these are some of the, some of the ideas around literacy, particularly that, um, that really speak, I think, to ideas both of, of religion, but also of, of, um, of hierarchy within communities. In this section, you also you talk about textbooks a lot. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's the relationship between uh, language, textbooks, and then the, the formation of religious identity in this time? Um, so one of the things that um, I think I, I really became interested in in this chapter was um, when people tend to think about um, missionary work in other parts of the world, and in fact, in, in this kind of, uh, if you read some of the, the books on, on missionaries in terms of their imperial aspirations, it's often seen that other religions react to missionaries. So, you know, evangelicals or Christians introduce certain kinds of ideas, other groups, other communities, Hindus, Muslims, etc., react to and their, their own ideas change. What I was interested in looking at in this chapter was actually how evangelical ideas began to change in interaction with other communities. In the case of the textbook itself, so there was this controversy over what kind of Bengali textbook to use. Um, the most popular textbook, which is a book called Varnaporichoy, was written by um, a very important educator and reformer named Vidyashagar. And Vidyashagar was very, um, he had, you know, he was interested in modernizing Bengali, but in that kind of modernizing of it, the Bengali that he, um, and the Bengali textbooks that he created, the language primers he created, really reflected a very, very much his background, which was as a scholar of Sanskrit, as an, as an upper caste um, um, Hindu scholar. And so these books tended to have words that were highly Sanskritized. 
Um, these were not necessarily the way that ordinary people spoke. Um, there were many different kinds of spoken Bengalis in all over all over this area, but this was a very particular form that spoke to his own background. In spite of the sort of rarefied kind of Bengali that he offered, it was nonetheless a modern prose Bengali and was really widely picked up. It became a very popular um, popular reader in Bengali schools. Many of them run by by um, by Hindu educators as well. What ended up happening, however, is that missionary schools began to use these books. And among missionaries, there was a debate about whether or not it was appropriate to use the reader written by a non-Christian to teach in a Christian school. Um, part of the issue that was raised was, of course, the nature of the Bengali that was being taught, that it was very Sanskritized, the words were difficult, it took a long time to learn, etc. But the other piece of it was that how is it, you know, isn't there a problem if the person that you're learning to read from, or the book that you're learning to read from, is not imbued with explicitly Christian moral tales, Christian Christian words, Christian lessons, etc. And so what we see here, and what, what I found very interesting, was the way that this book um, actually forced a kind of conversation among missions and missionaries themselves. And I would say, you know, kind of was a part of the shift that was happening in, in Britain as well, which is where people actually talked about being able to disengage or disconnect the, the religious identity of a person writing a book and even the religious content of a book from the teaching of the teaching of um, the teaching of letters or the teaching of sentence structure, etc. And so, what you see is this kind of what we would call a kind of secularizing process, but one that within in this context was really created by the situation of, in fact, um, Vidya Shagar writing this very popular book that displaced other missionary language primers. Um, and so that was, you know, so there was this kind of kind of that, that for me was this very interesting moment in the way that evangelicals themselves had to rethink what it meant to teach language, but also really whether or not it was possible to separate out religion as a subject from the teaching of language as a subject. And this is important not just for schooling, but I think in terms of when one starts thinking about more generally whether or not you can be, you know, a secular person in one aspect and just have religion in another aspect. And so that's, that in part was, was really my interest in this, in this language primer controversy. Um, another uh, pedagogical technique that, that was used uh, were object lessons. So uh, this, uh, these, are, these are kind of new to me. So maybe you could explain what these object lessons are and then uh, explain how, how they were used by missionaries and then how they were adapted by the Bengalis. Certainly. So, so object lessons, the idea of the object lesson, which, um, you know, which really um, uh, sort of very early on gets its first kind of articulation in the, in the work of a very radical, I'd say a very radical educator, um, Pestalozzi, was the idea that one could one should learn not from books that is small children should learn ideas not from books but from objects and for Pestalozzi particularly objects in nature objects outside and it is through through um, working with objects working with with natural um, natural things that 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 children would start to develop abstract ideas of things like counting 
color, form, etc. And for Pestalozzi, his interest in it was that he was very interested in kind of um, radically expanding the possibilities of education. So not just the European elite, in his case, kind of the the, the Swiss uh, elite got education, but really ordinary children would also be able to be taught. And he saw kind of object teaching moving away from books as one way to um, to sort of reach a larger a larger group, but also as a pedagogy that um, that was far less didactic, that offered a kind of open endedness if children themselves were allowed to handle objects. What happens is this this technique that has this, I would say, rather radical and very interesting kind of um, orientation, when it gets picked up and popularized by missionaries, in fact becomes a book again. So rather than handling objects, people start student the children are taught to use objects as they are pictured in books. And this goes back to this kind of evangelical interest in literacy more generally. Part of that shift, of course, is that the kind of non-didactic nature of having just an object that you handle really changes so that instead, um, almost all of the objects become framed by basically what are almost catechistical kind of kind of um, questions about how to apprehend or understand the object. That is, you know, rather than a student come to, or, or a child coming to an understanding of the object and a set of abstract ideas, now they are being guided and sometimes explicitly told how they should understand this object. Moreover, by moving it away from objects themselves, these object lesson books, um, these evangelical object lesson books, began to be filled with what I call objects of empire, Um, things like um, um, pepper, for example, or rice, things that an ordinary British schoolchild might not otherwise um, ever come into contact with, but suddenly would find in an object lesson book, and that object would be used to teach something, in fact, about the imperial or or the colonial place that um, that it had come from. this method actually becomes very popular um, among Indians themselves, and and there are a number of object lesson books that that um, that become um, written. Some of them direct translations, some of them some of them sort of loosely based on on other object lessons. But the books that get translated are not the evangelical books, and there and the purpose of them is less about teaching certain um, um, particular ideas of empire. Instead, the books that really become translated are books about science. And so they're scientific objects or scientific knowledge through objects that become popularly, um, that you find in these Bengali school books. But even there, just as in the evangelical books, they were very much framed by a set of kind of didactic question and answers. In the Bengali books also, what I look at is the ways that they again become framed by certain certain kinds of sort of didactic ideas, as well as certain kinds of assumptions about culture, about religion. Um, one example of this is actually rice. So rice appears in a number of different object lesson books. Um, in a very early um, evangelical book, in, in David Stowe's book, um, what you have um, in the object lesson about rice, um, rice is seen to stand in for certain qualities of rice-eating peoples, um, qualities that are not that positive, that are about being, you know, kind of lazy or being um, not as, you know, in, in highly gendered language, basically not as 
as manly as those that might be perhaps bread eating. Um, that rice lesson within the Bengali book gets changed completely. And so instead you have, on the one hand, slightly more attention paid to um, how rice is grown, how it is cultivated. But you also have a discussion, and this is what I found interesting, of the different uses of rice. But in discussing the different uses of rice, there's actually an, one of the uses is, is specifically about a particular religious ceremony or a puja. And so the assumption there is that for those reading that object lesson on rice, they would know that religious ceremony, that they would be connected somehow. And so you have a whole, you know, it's a different set of cultural ideas, but there are still a set of cultural ideas connected to this object called rice, um, but very different and very differently configured than you have in the in the evangelical books. Um, and what I'm interested in, kind of in a more general sense, with the, with object lessons, is this: is that it then serves as is paradoxically as a kind of metaphor for religious, kind of the evolution of religious thinking itself. So, if objects are used to used to teach abstract thinking, um, there is. A kind of explicit discussion about the way that um, that movement from the concrete to the abstract is precisely the movement that missionaries hope or evangelicals hope that um, other religious traditions will move. And in fact, the closer you are to objects as a as in your religious practice or understanding of your religious practice, the further you're seen from Christianity, the further you're seen from the possibility of abstraction or abstract thought. So Christianity becomes the example of abstraction or abstract thought and, um, you know, fetishism or um, the use of fetishism or use of fetishes or animism are seen as um, examples of the kind of concrete, almost childlike relationship to religion through objects. And so there are multiple ways that I see this object, uh, the, the object lesson working in terms of, of cultural and religious ideas, but also as a metaphor for itself, for a kind of evolution of religious thinking um, that is very much... Um, you know, evolutionarily um, understood through the movement from childlike to more adult forms of thinking, of abstract thinking and abstraction. Yeah, I found that uh, a very convincing argument how you use uh, these object lessons to to show how um, missionaries were trying to get Hindus away from the, the anthropomorphizing of, of icons and idols. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, very good chapter. I like that a lot. Um, in um in chapters four and five you, you talk a lot about uh, gender you you talk mm-hmm. about the roles uh, kind of the shaping of Bengali notions of masculinity mm-hmm. uh, of femininity I, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk about the the role of the teacher in these kind of uh, gendered behaviors that are being shaped certainly um, so uh, one of the things that I found very interesting in looking at um, the training the formal training of teachers was the ways that ideas of what it meant to be an effective teacher, the ways that they were kind of formally laid out, written up in um, both missionary and later um, kind of kind of uh, some of the Bengali um, uh, Bengali books, is uh, the ways that they also had a whole set of ideas of the teacher being a kind of ideal example of a certain kind of man, a certain kind of, you know, either... Um, 
not just metaphors, but literally being a father or um, literally the kinds of relationships a student should have to a teacher should be what the modern child to parent relationship should look like. And so I really saw teacher training as being about much more than the training of teachers, but really the training of certain kinds of models of behavior. But particularly in the case of, you know, so so one chapter deals with... um, with uh, with with male teachers in the case of male teachers very much models of um of fathering and fatherhood and masculinity um, with women teachers um they run into a problem in india not just in india in in britain one sees one sees a, a, a different problem but but what's interesting is that in india it's actually very hard to find women teachers um very this kind of strictures of 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 both upper caste Hindu society as well as upper, upper class Muslim society make it very difficult for women to work as teachers to move around to have that kind of um, to have that kind of public position and so um, there are various efforts to introduce first of all by the Department of Education kind of lower caste women um, and uh, not you know what, what are called Boragi or, or Vaishnava women as teachers this fails because there's so much resistance to seeing these women as respectable they're already seen as non-respectable because they tend to be single or widowed they tend to belong to um, religious groups that are not seen um, as really as truly um, moral or respectable. Um, And so instead, what the majority of teachers that you find, women teachers that you find in India, really come from missionary uh, training schools. And so you have um, a number of native Christians who become teachers. And um, while many of them are lower caste and therefore, you know, really not... um, totally acceptable by many upper caste homes or upper caste society, the fact of their Christian training, the fact that they work in mission schools um, means that they're able to um, set themselves up as teachers. And over time, teaching becomes very closely associated, in fact, with with um, with missionaries and mission teachers. You don't have the same problem with male teachers because there is um, a longer tradition of men being teachers. And so it's not just you know, native Christian men who become teachers, but many Hindu men, Muslim men, etc., who also become teachers. But in that training, they're expected not just to be a good teacher, but a model for a particular kind of father, a model for a particular kind of um, a particular kind of, of modern man. Um, in the final chapter, uh, we we find out in 1872 there's a census which reveals that uh, that Muslims make almost half the population. Um, but they're they're grossly underrepresented. Um, so after after 1872, um, how does this affect uh, changes in educational resources? Mm-hmm. So after the census is is taken, um, and it's not just about the census. There's sort of other changes happening um, in in Bengal and in India more generally. Th- there is a concerted effort by the colonial government to put resources directly into Muslim education. Um, Again, the question becomes, well, should the state set up its own set of schools for, to train, to, to educate Muslim communities? And it's decided instead of doing that, the state will help fund um, already pre-existing schools, um, Muslim schools. Um, 
there is uh, there are a number of issues institutionally um, as institutionally as well as logistically in terms of this decision. First of all, um, by this period, it's not just that there are um, many more Hindu schools, but the Department of Public Instruction itself it has far more. In fact, there are very few Muslims who are uh, you know inspectors or teachers or anything within within the department. So there's an so there's a need before you know in addition to starting these schools, there's a need actually to have inspectors to have more of a Muslim presence within the Department of Public Instruction itself. Um, uh, it's also the Pachala or the village school, um, it comes to be seen as a Hindu school, even though, you know, it's really supposed to be a village school. And so instead, the the department decides rather than um, using the Pachala or the village school as a school for all Bengalis, Hindus, Muslims, whatever. Instead, they'll put money into Quran schools, which are lower-level Muslim schools that are supposed to teach kind of basic literacy, um, as well as you know what's hoped is some of the more modern kinds of subjects. Um, what I was interested in in looking at this is that the that the Department of Public Instruction keeps saying over and over again that what they want is to modernize schooling. They want um, they want to add more secular material into already existing Muslim schools. Part of the reason for this is that even as the state recognizes that they have hugely underfunded Muslim education, there is this kind of anxiety or fear about the excessive religiosity of Muslims. And this very much um, has to do uh, with um, the way that the colonial state comes to kind of apprehend or understand, one could say stereotype, um, Hindus and Muslims, also because there is a fear of um, kind of peasant uprisings that will be led by Muslim leaders, for example. Um, And so there's a desire to kind of tamper down on what's seen as the excessive religiosity of Muslims through, for example, schooling. But what I find paradoxically is that the way they're going to do that is to expand religious schooling itself. Um, Moreover, in the efforts to expand or to modernize Muslim schooling, um, what I show is the ways that the colonial state, in spite of saying that it is indifferent or neutral to the question of religious education, actually ends up shaping the way that that um, much of the religious content itself is delivered. And um, what I mean, kind of an example of this is actually going back to this question of literacy is, for example, the re-emphasis on literacy in books. So within a number of Quran schools and within kind of Muslim education more generally, there is a lot of the, as well as within Hindu education, it's not anything that's specific to, to Muslim education, there is a lot of emphasis on various forms of oral literacy, of learning things by heart, of being of recitation, etc., this is now seen as pedagogically backward. Um, and instead, it is, uh, in order to be a modern school, one must have books that will teach you the same things that previously you may have learned in an oral context. In that emphasis on books, on book learning, and a real effort to marginalize other forms of oral literacy, what I see is, you know, a, an effort to kind of um, re, or to introduce that that evangelical emphasis on literacy on the book as the primary way to become a modern religious subject. For evangelicals, of course, it's reading the Bible. But in this case, the idea is that to be a 
um, um, you know, a, a, a good modern Muslim school, your students should be reading the Quran, not merely learning it by heart. And so this effort to change pedagogy, I argue, should also be seen actually as an effort to change some of the practice itself, some of the kind of, as I was say, as I have, had described, a kind of ordinary or sort of mundane way that um, that the definition of what it means to be um, educated as a Muslim or learn Muslim knowledge actually ends up being shaped by these demands that are ostensibly pedagogic. Um, so that's sort of sort of in that chapter. My real my interest is in how in trying to reform or modernize these schools. In fact, there are all these efforts to to introduce pedagogic ideas that change the 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 um, the content, but also the form in which in which religious knowledge is um, is conveyed. Well, Parna, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, very interesting to talk to you. Um, the book again, uh, I really thought was very very good, well researched, very dynamic in what the ways you're approaching your sources and. Uh, I think you're adding a lot to the conversation, so hopefully you'll get some uh, wide readership. Before I let you go, though, um, would you mind telling us about what uh, what kind of things you're working on now? Certainly. Um, you know, I, I uh, what I'm working on right now is something that um, – that is uh, that seems so completely different from this book, but is connected, in fact, precisely in this question of I think the relationship between sort of religion and, and transformation. I'm um, working on astrology and a project on 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 astrological almanacs and the practice of astrology more generally. Um, um, I'm interested in the fact that astrology continues to be very important in modern India and important not just for religious functions, but in fact, in making very, lots of different kinds of decisions about business, about one's personal life, etc. And so I'm really interested in, in what happens to astrology over the 19th and 20th century in India, how it becomes connected to things that we see as very modern, like the marketplace. Um, and so that's, uh, that's what, my, what my new project is about. Great. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, well, thank you again. We really uh, enjoy talking to you and appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And that was my interview with Parnasan Gupta about her wonderful new book, Pedagogy for Religion, Missionary Education, and the Fashioning of Hindus and Muslims in Bengal, out on University of California Press this year. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.